Good morning, church. Um, how are you guys doing? <laughs> yeah? You ready to hear a message this morning? All right. Now, before we get started uh, and continue on in our Titus series, the Godly Playbook, um, I know we Josh has mentioned it a little bit. Uh, some of us are coming into this place with heavy hearts for the things that we've seen in the news this week, with the things that have been going on. Um, and so we're going we're gonna to do what we can as a church family right now. We're going to take some time to pray together. And so would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we're so grateful that we can come to you as uh, little children and, and talk to our Father in Heaven. Lord, we are so overwhelmed and heartbroken by all of the, the tragedy and the, the grief that we've seen this week. We don't really know what to say. Um, we don't know what to do. Some of us might be feeling angry, upset, frustrated, sad, overwhelmed, Lord. But what we do know is that we have a God who loves so deeply and who cares for the, this broken world. And so today, Lord, we give you all of those things. Lord, we want to lift up the um, 19 children and two teachers who died this past week of the shooting in Texas, Lord. We, we, we're just so um, in disbelief that this happened um, again, Lord, and we see it again and again. Lord, we pray that you uh, would come and bring your... Um, your peace and your healing. We pray, Lord, that your presence and your love and your grace and your restorative justice and healing, Lord, would just touch every single person who has been affected by this evil. We pray uh, that we would be reminded um, of your power in the face of such evil in this world, that we are not without hope. We are not without a God who um, cares but you are the good shepherd. You are the one who is with us in the valley, the shadow of death. You are the one who understands and who empathizes with our suffering and our weakness because you yourself have gone through so much pain on the cross. We don't know a better God um, to have in this time, Lord. And so would you come and you, would you be with your people and would you draw near? Would you bring your um, comfort and your encouragement through people? through your word, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us as a community here how to lament and to mourn um, and also how to walk alongside as, as the hands and feet of Jesus in this world uh, to bring your light in the darkest of places, Lord. That even in the moments that we don't know what to do or how to act, we pray um, that you would come and just be. Lord, help us as we continue to um, learn what it means to be your church in this world, um, how to speak up and act uh, in the face of injustice, um, how to be your hands and feet, and how to love on the people who are hurting in this world better, Lord. We thank you for you. We love you, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Oh, change of gears a little bit. Um, now, church, before we dive into our scripture for this morning, I want to play a little game. Now, this is kind of weird. Normally, we do this in youth, right? But not in the big church, so let's see how this goes. 
Um, this will require just a little bit of participation from all of you, but do, don't worry. You don't have to get up. You just have to raise your hands. All right, everybody can do that and practice. Right. Okay, cool. Okay, now this game is called Two Truths and a Lie. Now, the way this game works is I'm going to read out three statements. Um, they'll also be shown on the screen, so you can read them there. Now, among these three statements, two of them are true and one is false. Two are true, one is false. Your job is to figure out which one is false. Okay, you got it? Here we go. Number one. Oh, this is about my life, by the way. <laughs> Number one. I failed my driver's test for driving too slow. Number two. I took 14 AP classes total in high school. Number three. I like dressing up more than I like dressing down. Okay? So go ahead. Take a second. Cast your vote in your mind, and, and we'll, we'll see <laughs> what people think in here. All right. Raise your hand if you think it's number one. You got one, one in the back there. Okay. All right. Raise your hand if you think it's number two. Okay. <laughs> and number three. Wow. <laughs> All right. Okay. Number three is, is, is the, the audience vote here. Um, well, the correct answer is actually number one, which means that it's false. <laughs> I actually failed my driver's test for driving too fast um, in a school zone during school hours. <laughs> but since then, I have learned, so do not worry when I drive your youth or your children. I promise I'm a safe driver. All right. Now, we laugh here. We think it's a silly game. We like to do this game as icebreakers with youth or kids. You know, it's kind of fun. Um, but the reality of it is that we actually play this game many, many times every single day. We are constantly discerning between what is true and what is false. And that is exactly what we're going to be talking about this morning. Now, for some of you guys who maybe uh, know or have heard these stories, that was pretty easy, right? But if you maybe haven't heard these stories from me or you haven't spent as much time, maybe that, that activity was a little challenging, and so I threw a lot of you guys off. Um, but we'll see how important it is and how it is to discern truth in a world that sometimes is full of lies, that are feeding a lot of different messages to us every single day. It's exactly relevant for us today. It's, it was relevant for uh, Titus's context back then as well. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn to me to Titus chapter 1, verses 10 to 16. And if you do have them, I, I invite you to actually open them up. We're going to be jumping around in that passage, so it's nice to have it uh, right in front. Now, as a quick recap, two weeks ago, Pastor Eric started us off by giving us the context of why Paul wrote this letter to Titus and what the culture of Crete was actually known for. Remember, Paul was writing to Titus to encourage him in how to raise up healthy churches in the corrupt culture of Crete. And it says here, Cretans were known as liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This was the type of culture that Cretans prided themselves in. It's, it's something that even one of their own prophets described themselves as. 
And so the problem that Paul is addressing is that there are false teachers who were corrupted by the culture in their midst, who infiltrated the church and they were leading God's people astray. So the first order of business was what Pastor Ben preached on last week. Establish godly leadership. Paul is telling Titus, you must establish godly elders and pastors who are blameless in their character, full of integrity and truth, who demonstrate the fruits of godliness, holiness, righteousness, self-control in their lives, in their families, and who hold fast to and submit to the truth of God's word in order to discern and live out the gospel in their lives. He's saying we need this type of strong and solid leadership within our churches. Now, again, why is this Titus's first order of business? Well, because false teaching was so pervasive in the churches and the culture in Crete at the time. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to answer a few questions. Number one, how do we identify a false teacher? Number two, How should we respond to a false teacher? And number three, how can we guard ourselves against false teaching? We're going to spend a little bit of time through the scriptures answering those three questions. Let's begin with number one. How do we identify a false teacher? In other words, what are the qualities or characteristics of false teachers? We'll start in verse 10. Paul gives us a little clue as he identifies them. He says, for there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. You see, it's not just one or two people that Paul is concerned about. The text says there were many, many false teachers, and he describes them as, number one, rebellious. Other translations say insubordinate. Meaning they don't, they don't submit themselves to the truth of God's word. They don't submit themselves to the authorities uh, within the church. They really don't listen to anyone at all. They do just about anything that they please. Rebellious. Full of meaningless talk or empty talkers. Not only do they not listen to anyone, but the things that they do choose to say, they're, they're meaningless unprofitable. They're doing a lot of talking, but they're not actually saying anything at all. Their words, they sound good and eloquent and smart, but when you really, really dig underneath the surface, there's no actual substance or anything of lasting value behind their words. Empty talkers. Last one, deceivers. Paul bluntly puts it that they were full of deception. They were deceiving others, lying, leading others astray in their rebellion. So you got that. in In the very first verse that we're looking at, we see they are rebellious, empty talkers, and deceivers. And last part, it says, especially those of the circumcision group. Now, who was the circumcision group? Well, this gives a little more insight into the specific context of this letter and what's happening at the time. The circumcision group was a group of people uh, within the early church who had a strong Jewish uh, history or background, and they were essentially, uh, what you call, gospel and people. Gospel and people. You know those people who basically took the gospel and they added things to it. They were the ones who preached that 
Yes, you needed Jesus, but you also needed to fulfill a bunch of things on this list in order to secure your salvation. Within this context, the circumcision group, what they were doing was essentially teaching uh, Christians, new Gentile Christians, that they had to be circumcised um, and obey all the laws of Moses in order to be saved. This is not a new problem. This is the same problem that Paul actually faced in many of the other places uh, you could see in, in his letters. Even the church in Jerusalem addressed the same controversy in Acts like years prior to this, and it's still a thing. In Acts 15:1, it says this, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. See, it's gospel and something. Here, it was gospel and circumcision. They were adding to salvation. They were saying, Jesus is not enough. You also need to do this, this, and this. Church, this is absolutely false. So just say that right here. Absolutely false. That is not the gospel. The gospel truth is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We do not have to do anything to earn it. We did not do anything to deserve it. But by Christ's sacrifice on the cross, we are saved completely and covered by his righteousness. That is it. That is the truth of the gospel. These people were deceiving the people in the churches, taking truth and twisting it. Let's move on to verse 11. What was the effect of their false teaching? Well, verse 11 says this. It says they must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. So it says here they were disrupting whole households by teaching false things. They were literally causing turmoil and confusion within families, within people of the church over these issues. And the result was not unity of the body, it was disunity. The result was not edification and encouragement, but division and hostility. And for what? It says, for the sake of dishonest gain. Yes, we normally think about dishonest gain as money, and that probably uh, was true in this case as well. But I imagine it was probably also other types of gain, emotional, social gain, like fame, like adoration or praise of people a following or a shiny platform to, you know, teach more influence, control, power, whatever you want to name it, for the sake of dishonest gain. All these people cared about was gaining an advantage for themselves. We're often told that shepherds and teachers, those in positions of authority to influence and lead, they're supposed to selflessly care for the flock and those entrusted to their care. But these false teachers, deep down, really only cared about one thing, their own selfish gain. Let's keep going. Verse 12. One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. 
Now, Pastor Eric already touched upon uh, verse 12 a good amount in his message, so we won't spend so much time here. Uh, but this, again, just gives a little more insight into what these false teachers were like. They were corrupted by their culture, by Cretans who were uh, known everywhere as liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. They only concerned themselves with Jewish myths and things that, uh, from people who blatantly and willingly rejected the truth. They were corrupted even by religious tradition. These people, just, they don't seem very pleasant, do they? <laughs> do you see how these characteristics are in direct contrast to the characteristics of the godly elders in verses 5 to 9? Paul is laying out plain and simple. These people, they shouldn't have influence in our churches. They should not have influence in our lives. And verse 15 continues to show an example of why. Verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. Once again, the false teachers claimed again and again that many things made a person unclean or impure. This was rooted in uh, you know, Old Testament ceremonial law, uh, but also had some Greek philosophy mixed in with it. This, uh, this was this idea that the physical world uh, was evil, was bad. And all these God-given things were inherently impure. So regardless of, you know, faith in Jesus, regardless of trust in Jesus, if uh, men were not circumcised, impure. If they ate certain foods, impure. If they married and then engaged in a sexual relationship within the covenant of marriage, impure. And the list goes on and on. But we know from Scripture this idea was in direct contradiction of what Jesus himself said. In Mark 7, 15, it says this. Jesus says this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. For, for, uh, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, etc., etc. All these things, evil things, come from within and they defile a person. So you see, Jesus, he already contradicts this in his teaching. He says, no, it's, it's not about what food we can or cannot eat. It's about the heart. It's about what's coming out of my heart that defiles, that matters. These teacher, these False teachers were corrupted and unbelieving. As a result, they were mishandling the word of God. They were twisting scripture and the gospel into something that it was not. And they were, as a result, disrupting whole households with this stuff. Do you get the picture yet? Rebellious, empty talkers, deceivers, shameful gain, corrupt, unbelieving, all these things. And yet probably the scariest part of all, in my opinion, is verse 16. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They claim to know God. They profess with their mouths to know God. They look and sound like Christians. They could, you know, be sitting in pews with us and we wouldn't even know. 
They're probably pretty good at fooling people and winning them over, doing all the right outward things to make people think that they were true. But Paul says, no. Even though they claim to know God, look at their actions. They deny God with their actions. They talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. They say that they're good with God, but their behavior directly contradicts this. You see, Paul is saying this is the key. This is the key. You want to know how to discern a false teacher? Look at their fruit. Look at the way that they live their lives. Look at what they're doing when no one is watching. In Matthew 7, it says this. Jesus says this. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. We'll jump to verse 20. By their fruit, you will recognize them. See, when Christ is working in you, and you have actively chosen uh, to live the life of following Jesus, you will bear good fruit. But these false teachers, they bore fruit that showed evidence of a life that was so far from God. A life of rebellion, a life of disobedience, a life of corruption and deceit. And because of this, Paul in verse 16 finishes this section off by saying they are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Church, how do we identify a false teacher? Look at their fruit. Now, we've extensively looked at the scriptures and looked at all the things that Paul describes as characteristics of false teachers. But sprinkled in these verses are also counsel on how to respond to false teachers. So we're going to move on to question number two right now. How do we respond in the face of false teachers? Well, once we've identified them and discerned a false teacher from a true teacher, verse 11 says, they must be silenced. They must be silenced. It sounds harsh, right? I know. But I I think it just shows how serious of a matter false teaching really is. I mean, Paul is not advocating for, you know, uh, physical force or violence to shut them up. No, he's, he's simply, you know, reiterating to Titus, we can't let them continue spewing these lies in our churches. We can't let them disrupt our our families with false truths that are not of God. We can't let them have that influence. We must guard and protect believers by exposing this false teaching into the light. Verse 13 goes on to say, Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith. So not only are we supposed to, you know, stop their speech, stop their influence, But it says, rebuke them sharply. Rebuke them. Correct them. Discipline them. He's saying, you know, guys, you're going to have to stand up. You're going to have to stand up to these guys. You're going to have to address it directly and clearly. You're going to have to be bold and courageous in speaking the truth to a brother or sister who is just going down the wrong path and taking others with them. You got to do it. And you got to do it with the grace and the love and the care of Jesus Christ. Now, what's the, the, the reason for this? Well, you know, is it 
it to be judgmental? Is it to be mean? Is it to, you know, cast them out or to be self-righteous or superior? No, absolutely not. Paul finishes this section by saying, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith. So that they will be sound in the faith. We are to call out false teachers and correct them so that that we can help them be sound, so that we can help them know the truth of God's word accurately, so we can help them grow in godliness and maturity of the faith. It's all in the name of love. It's all because of a deep desire for them to come into the light and to be changed by the truth of the gospel. So with that heart motivation, how do we do this? Well, we do it with love. We do it with wisdom. We do it with courage. We do this only by our understanding and careful discernment of God's word, that they may be refined and purified and matured in their faith. Church, this is, this is a very difficult thing to do in our, in our church, in our culture today. I mean, we don't like this. We don't like discipline. We don't like confronting. The idea of confronting people or rebuking, or keeping people accountable is actually really hard and uncomfortable for us. It's actually pretty awkward, right? A lot of us try to avoid it just because we don't want awkwardness within our circles. It's touchy. It's sensitive. And I admit, I sometimes am uh, not the greatest at being called out either. You know, it's not a pleasant thing to do. But here in the scripture, we see again and again that it is so important. We have to. We have to do it. It's it's the loving thing to do. It's the Christ-like thing to do. We must get better at becoming people who can speak the truth in love boldly without fear of awkwardness. And we must get better at becoming people who can receive the truth in humility, trusting that it's coming from people who love us. It's necessary. It's so necessary for the health and growth of our churches, and for each other to be sound in the faith. we got to do it. How do we respond to false teachers? Lovingly rebuke them that they may be sound in the faith. Now, last question. How can we guard, how can we guard ourselves against false teaching? Now, this question is essentially... And effectively, how can we do the, the first two questions? But we're going to stick with this one. How can we guard against false teaching? And in my mind, I, I, think it's, I think it comes down to this. We must become discerners and doers of God's word. We must become discerners and doers of God's word. I know that right before this, Paul is describing, you know, established godly leadership Uh, He discusses how important it is to have elders of the church who can guard against false teaching. But I also think that this is something that we all can do. We can all proactively do this in our faith as well. First part, become a discerner of God's word. What do I mean by that? Well, in order to discern against false teaching, we must know the truth to measure it by, right? It's just like our game in the very beginning. Um, let's just say we spent a little more time together. You heard all my stories and you, I gave you this test again. Would you, wouldn't it be so much easier to discern which one was false or which one was true, right? 
It's just like that. It's the same thing. We must know the truth of God's word. We must know what it says. The Bible is filled with so many testimonies, so many stories of who God is, so many scriptures that uh, shed light on his character, his heart, his mission. It's filled with truths about who we are, our identity in him and what he has done for us on the cross. It's filled with so many books laying out the gospel in full clarity, full clarity. We must take the time to know what it says. How? By reading it. Simple. By reading it. A little bit. Every day to start off. By reading it. By spending time with it. By memorizing it. So it's written on your heart. By meditating on it day and night. Day and night. And actually living and treating the word of God as if our very lives depended on it. I see this so many times as I'm reading through uh, the scriptures, through the Psalms especially, the desperation of someone who knows the secret of meditating on God's word day and night. The one who longs for the Lord as a deer pants for water. We had a, a, a prayer meeting with Pastor Dave Clark recently, and someone asked a question, Pastor Dave, how do you continue doing what you, what you do? And he simply said, I... You know, I spend time with God every day. Every day I'm meditating on his word. Contrast this with the false teachers. In verse 15 it says, their minds and their consciences are corrupted. They don't know the truth of God's word. They haven't spent enough time with it to discern it, to really truly understand it and let it transform their hearts. They, they maybe are the cherry pickers, right? They cherry pick verses here and there and make their own argument based on what they want to say. They don't know God's word. So I ask you, do you know the word of God? Has it taken hold of your heart? Are you filling your minds with this truth? Are you teaching your kids what the word of God says? Because the reality is we hear voices all over the world, from, from the world all around us every single day. Like we're, we're, it's crazy how many messages we're being communicated, whether it's through you know, social media, Instagram, Facebook, TV, entertainment, peers, family, friends, news outlets, influencers, et cetera, et cetera. Literally, the sources, there's so many messages being taught to us every single day, and it becomes really hard to figure out what is true and what is false. It's even harder when some of the false teachings sound like truth. When they're a version of the truth that has just been twisted or perverted or added onto. We're going to have to discern what is true and what is false. But you've got to know God's word in order to do that well. Now, what does that look like today? Um, I know we might not be same, facing some of the same issues that this uh, church in Crete was. You know, we're not going through problems of circumcision or eating foods that were clean or unclean. But I would say there are many messages in our culture that have uh, subtly infiltrated our lives and our thoughts. Um, and so they, these are some of the things that came to mind. Our world sometimes says that truth is relative. You know, my truth, your truth, all roads lead to heaven, all these things. Jesus says, I am the truth. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. Our culture teaches us to build our lives here on earth and ensure our security by going to a good school, getting a nice job, house, money, retirement. Jesus teaches us to store up our treasures in heaven. Instead, take up our cross and follow him. I think another one, a hill that we Americans often die on is our individual freedom and our rights. We're told by society again and again that we're entitled to certain things and no one can take them away. In 1 Corinthians, the word of God says, I have the right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. In other words, sometimes lay down your rights for other people. Our world says it's about me, 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 and what I want. God teaches us to consider others more significant than ourselves and to care for um, the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized, the vulnerable. And last one I thought of, our culture today encourages us, encourages us to literally cancel people um, and shut them out if there's a disagreement or conflict or a wrong. The Bible shows us that there's a different way, a way of repentance forgiveness, reconciliation for even those who have hurt us. The gospel reminds us that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace for even while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. Do you see all these different messages contrasted with what God says? How do we guard against false teaching? Know and discern the word of God. And lastly, I promise you, I'm almost done. <laughs> um, it's not enough just to know the word of God. It's not enough just to know it in your heads and profess it with your mouths. We must become doers of God's word. Do you remember the false teachers in verse 16? It says they also claim to know God. They probably said all the right things, you know, but their, their actions gave them away. They couldn't fake a life transformed by the gospel, and neither can we. Knowledge without transformation is meaningless. Profession of faith without the fruit to back it up is useless. In order to guard against false teaching externally and internally within our own hearts, we must not only be knowers and discerners, but doers of God's word. This is something the false teachers did not know. Um, but we know that though salvation is found in the sacrifice of Jesus alone, um, there's also a process of sanctification, becoming more Christ-like, bearing fruit, which requires our active participation. And so I just encourage us lastly to, to consider this, that we must seek to grow in our faith and in godly character so that we bear the fruits of the Spirit in all we do. We must commit to become more like Christ every day and actively put in the work to change our old ways that by our fruit and by our love, all will know that we are disciples, the true disciples of Jesus Christ. We must become discerners and doers of God's word. Church, let's pray. Lord God, we praise you because even in the midst of a dark and broken world, we have light. We have the truth of your word. 
we have the light of your son. Um, we have the encouragement of believers around us to go through this life, to encourage us toward um, the way of Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would give us so much wisdom, so much discernment um, to know what is from you and what is not. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the desire within our hearts and the discipline in our lives to read your word, to meditate on it day and night, to spend time with you so that we may know your word in our hearts. And Lord, we pray that you give us the strength and the conviction to continue to live out our lives um, filled with the truth of the gospel that we may bear fruit for your name. We thank you, Lord. Um, for this word, and we pray that it would stick with us this week, that we would strive to become discerners and doers of your precious word. We love you so much, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.